it's time for me to talk about something that I have tried to avoid talking about. But if I'm going to do 88 counties of murderers in Ohio, I got to talk about Pike County. And I cannot talk about Pike County without talking about the Piketon Massacre. I am Bill Swafford, and this is Murderers in Ohio. So we got a killer on a run in Ohio. Eighty-eight counties of murderers in Ohio continues on, and this episode will be about Pike County. The case that I am going to talk about is something that I have tried to avoid doing an episode on. The only reason for that is that there is already a great podcast dedicated just to this story. That podcast is called The Python Massacre. Make sure that you go check it out. Before I begin, I will have to say that I will have to do this in a couple of different parts. There is just too much information with this case to put into one episode. Now, once I've decided to talk about this story, I knew that I need to make sure that my opinion is put in. And hopefully by the end of this, I have something for you that you might not have heard from any other podcast. And I need to do this without stepping on any toes of any other podcast or podcast host. This podcast, Murderers in Ohio, is about convicted murderers in the state of Ohio. Jake Wagner took a plea deal and admitted to murdering five people. Jake is now a convicted murderer in the Buckeye State of Ohio. So Jake Wagner is on the list for the Murderers in Ohio podcast. I have honestly been interested in what happened in Piketon, Ohio since the first time I heard about it. There is a whole lot to this. There's a lot of theories that surrounded this whole incident. What happened in Piketon in April of 2016 would put all eyes on Pike County, Ohio. Eight family members were shot and murdered execution style in one night. It leads to a two-year-long investigation. Then six members of another family would be arrested for this crime. Four of those family members face charges with death penalty consequences. So with all that being said, let's get this started. Pike County is only around a 40-minute drive north of the Kentucky state line. It is south of Chillicothe and of Columbus and is west of Cincinnati. There are only three corporated cities in Pike County. They are Waverly, Piketon, and Beaver. There are some smaller unincorporated townships in Pike County, like Starkdale and Jasper. The city of Waverly is the county seat with around 27,000 residents. Piketon, the town we are going to talk about, has only a little over 2,000 residents. The unemployment rate is high in Pike County. There is not a lot of good job opportunities around the county. If there was more job opportunities, it doesn't appear to be a bad area to live in. We all know how things can change overnight. There was a night in April of 2016 that would change the town of Piketon forever. Now, April in Ohio means the start of spring, saying goodbye to the cold and snow. Summer is not too far away, 
springtime can feel like a time for new beginnings, a new start. April was a month for something new for the Roden family. It was around April 16th or 17th of 2016 when 19-year-old Hannah Roden gave birth to her second little girl. Even though Hannah didn't know who the father was, it was still a happy time for the Roden family. Hannah Roden was a decent-looking young girl with dark, long hair. Hannah and her two daughters lived with her mom, 37-year-old Dana Roden, and also Hannah's brother, 16-year-old Chris Roden Jr. They lived in a home on Union Hill Road in Pike County. Dana had been previously married to Chris Roden Sr., Hannah's father. Dana and Chris Roden Sr. was married for 22 years but had gotten a divorce. Dana and Chris still stay close together. Chris actually bought Dana her home on Union Hill Road. Chris Sr. also had a place on Union Hill Road not too far from Dana's home. Chris had a mobile home on a piece of land that was also shared by a barn, some junk cars, and another home. In this other home lived 20-year-old Frankie Roden and his fiancée, Hannah Gilly, and their two small children. The Roden family stayed close to each other. It was all about family. Were they a horrible family? No, they were not a horrible family. and The Rodens did not deserve what happened to them on April 22nd of 2016. Now Hannah has a two and a half year old daughter named Sophia that she has custody over. Sophia's dad is 24 year old Jake Wagner. Jake Wagner is average height with dirty blonde hair. Hannah met Jake when she was only 13 years old. Hannah and Jake, who was almost 18 at the time, had started dating. It was young love. They had a daughter together. They had plans of getting married. They had wedding rings tattooed to their fingers. But it did not work out like the two had hoped. Jake Wagner had kept up hope that Hannah and him would eventually get back together. But he would soon realize that the family life that he wanted would never happen. Sometime on the day of April 21st, Jake goes over to Hannah's house and picks up his daughter Sophia. If someone didn't know any better, one would think that Jake was picking up his daughter to help relieve the stress off of Hannah, you know, because Hannah was dealing with a four-day-old baby and was still trying to heal up herself. At first, people were unsure of why Jake had picked up his daughter at this time. But whatever the reason was, Sophia had gone to spend some time with her dad, Jake. The events of what actually happened throughout the night of April 21st and into the early hours of April 22nd are still unknown to the public. There are still court trials that are still ongoing. I can talk about what is known about the morning of April 22nd, the morning that law enforcement and the town of Piketon would discover that they had killers on the run somewhere in Pike County. At 7.51 in the morning of April 22nd, 911 received a call from Bobby Joe Manley. Bobby Joe is Dana Roden's sister. 
Bobby Joe told 911 that she had gone into Chris Sr.'s house. Chris and his cousin Gary Roden looked like they had been beaten and were dead. The 911 operator had made sure to tell Bobby Joe to go outside of the house and to not let anyone inside. There is something I heard in the 911 call that I have questions about. I will ask these questions later on. But what I heard was Bobby Joe saying that the door had been locked, but she had known where the key was, and that she had gone there to feed the dogs. We'll talk more about those two things later. While Bobby Joe was waiting outside for law enforcement to show up, she had gone next door to Frankie's house. Bobby Joe wanted to check on Frankie and his fiancée to let them know what was going on next door with Frankie's dad. This is something that anyone would do in this situation. Someone would want to go check on their nephew and let them know what is going on especially if they lived right next door. Once Bobby Joe was at Frankie's place, she first saw Frankie's three-year-old son. It is said that the three-year-old told his aunt that him and his dad was playing zombies. They had been fans of The Walking Dead. Bobby Joe picks up the three-year-old and goes looking for Frankie and his fiance. Bobby Joe finds two more victims. Frankie Roden and Hannah Gilly, who were in their bed with their six-month-old baby, who had been left unharmed. At this point, there are four victims in two different homes. Four victims of the same family found by Bobby Joe. By this time, Bobby Joe had to have been freaking the hell out. Bobby Joe keeps her composure and calls her brother, James Manley. Bobby Joe tells James about what is going on at Chris Sr.'s and Frankie's places. James then goes and checks on his sister, Dana Roden. James discovers two more victims, his sister and niece, Dana and Hannah Roden. It did not take long for the media to pick up this story, and the town of Piketon soon found out that six people of the same family had been murdered. Law enforcement and some other people noticed that 16-year-old Chris Roden Jr. could not be found. Chris did not appear to be at his home with his mom and sister, and Chris Jr. had not showed up at school. Law enforcement did say that at first they did look at Chris Jr. as a possible suspect in the murders. This is only because they did not know his whereabouts at the time. This is nothing out of the normal. Law enforcement has to look at everyone and consider everything in a situation like they are dealing with. Besides that, Pike County Sheriff's Department could not have been prepared to deal with these horrible murders in three different locations. At some point in the day, law enforcement would go over the crime scene at Dana Roden's house. This was a few hours after receiving the first 911 call. They would soon find the body of 16-year-old Christopher Roden. All this would be overwhelming for most small sheriff's departments. They had three crime scenes to go over, with seven victims. Where would a person even start with an investigation 
into something this horrible. The questions were only beginning to stack up. The afternoon of April 22nd would only bring more questions. 911 operators would receive another call. At 1.26 p.m., Donald Stone would call 911 while he was at his cousin's house. 44-year-old Kenneth Roden was the eighth and final victim. Kenneth Roden lived on Union Road, not the same as Union Hill Road, in a small township outside of Piketon. This all would be the start of the largest homicide investigation in the state of Ohio's history. It would take up to two years till arrests would be made. A lot of things would happen within those two years. The Pike County Sheriff's Office would need some help. They had eight victims of one family, murdered execution style, at four different crime scenes, and three young children left alive. Hannah's newborn baby, along with Frankie and Hannah's six-month-old baby, went into protective services. Frankie's three-year-old, which Frankie had with another lady, the three-year-old's mom got custody over him. She was not involved in the murders. When I first heard about what happened to the Roden family, I figured there had to be multiple people involved. It would take a highly trained individual to do something like this alone. Of course, many theories would build up over the next two years about this. This had to have been a something that was very well planned out. I mean, let's think about this. A group of killers, from two to four, whatever, a group of killers go on a killing spree, a one-night killing spree, and take out eight members of one family. This was very well thought out. The people of Piketon were in shock and were starting to get scared. Law enforcement had no idea who could have pulled off such a horrible crime. When I scan over this area with Google Maps, the homes of Union Hill Road are not all bunched together. There wouldn't be too many neighbors around to hear any gunshots. At this time, they did know that the eight victims had been shot to death. There were people from Piketon and surrounding areas that had put up reward money for any information that led to the arrest for the Roden murders. Donations were being given to help bury all eight members of the Roden family. I would like to put in real quick that the eight bodies were sent to Hamilton County Coroner's Office in Cincinnati. I'm not sure why the bodies were sent to Hamilton County, which is several counties west of Pike County. I'm sure it was because Hamilton County was more equipped to deal with that many victims at that time. Pike County does have its own coroner's office, but Pike County is not heavily populated, so it doesn't have all the resources and equipment that a bigger county would have. At this time, Ohio's governor, Mike DeWine, was attorney general. 
Mike DeWine would make an announcement that would add to the investigation and change how some people viewed the Roden family. On April 24th, Mike DeWine said that five search warrants had been executed, but not give the locations. The biggest thing that DeWine said at this time was that law enforcement had in fact found marijuana grow operations at three different rodent homes. I don't believe that I have seen or heard what locations these grow operations were at, but I am going to take a guess. I am going to say two were at Chris Sr. and Frankie's places, which both homes set on one piece of property. I would say the third would be at Kenneth Roden's place. Once people heard about the marijuana grow operations, it changed how some people felt about the Roden family. The reward money that people had put up was taken back. Donations for the family had stopped coming in. I think it is awful that the reward money was taken back and that the donations had stopped coming in. No matter what these people were involved in, they did not deserve to get murdered like they did. Plus, it's disrespectful to the family members of the victims. The grow operations helped spark theories that a rival grower or possibly the cartel could have been involved. A big murder like this could lead to the cartel but the cartel more than likely would not have left the young children alive. The area where Chris Sr. and Frankie lived is not a heavy populated area. If a person who knew what they were doing and took the right steps, a good sized grill operation could be done in this area, whether it be an outdoor or indoor grill operation. I do wonder what other Roden family members knew about the grill operations. Gary Roden, Chris's cousin, had to have known something about the marijuana. Gary did not live with Chris, but he would sometimes stay at Chris's place. They were close to each other. Most good-sized grow operations are done by at least two or more people. Now, who was all involved with the grow operations might not have anything to do with the murders but I am left with questions about this part of the Rodin's life. One question is, who are the people that knew about the grow operations outside of the family? Did Jake Wagner know about this grow operation? This also has me questioning the first 911 call. The first 911 call was made by Bobby Joe Manley, Dana Rodin's sister. Bobby Joe would be Chris Roden's ex-sister-in-law. Two things about this call caught my attention. Bobby Joe said that the door had been locked. Did the killer lock the door? Did the killers enter the home in a different way? Then while on the phone with 911, Bobby Joe said that she was there to feed the dogs. Why was she there at her ex-brother-in-laws to feed the dogs. I think about this because we're talking about a place where two grown men are at. Two grown men who can feed the dogs on their own. 
why was it necessary for Bobby Joe to go and feed Chris's dogs on this day? Now, there are reports of guard dogs being on several of the properties. So, my main question is, how much did Bobby Joe know about what was going on at Chris Sr.'s property? This is where I will mention one thing about Kenneth Roden's crime scene. Kenneth's body had been covered with dollar bills. His body was the only one found like this. Finding a body with dollar bills thrown over it and then finding grill operations would be easy to say that a motive for these killings could be as simple as a drug deal gone wrong. No matter what some people felt about the Rowans after this, the investigation into their murders would still move forward. Law enforcement would question Bobby Joe and James Manley, Dana's siblings. They would be questioned a few times. Bobby Joe took a couple polygraph tests, which she passed. I would like to point out that law enforcement always questions whoever it is that discovers a body. This is a routine with any law enforcement department. On April 26, a partial autopsy report was released to the public. This did not sit well with some news media. They wanted to know everything. There was two lawsuits filed to release full autopsy reports. At that time, Attorney General Mike DeWine said that the full reports could not be given out at that time because it could be harmful to their investigation. Basically, they believe that there is something in that report that only the killers would know. The media knows that every little piece of information cannot be given out while an investigation is in process. I believe that these two lawsuits cross a line with respect for the victims and respect for the investigation that was going on. Here is a little bit of what everyone knows about the partial autopsy reports. All eight victims were shot execution style. Chris Roden Sr. was shot nine times. His wounds were to his head, torso, and forearm. Some people believe that the shot to the forearm was a defensive wound. It was possible that Chris had seen his attackers and put up his arm when the killer had fired the gun. Chris's body shows signs that it was already decomposing. This would be a sign that he was the first victim. That would mean the second victim would have to have been Gary Roden. Gary was shot three times in the head. One of the shots had left a muzzle stain. A muzzle stain is left when the killer has the gun very close to the victim's skin. Very close range. The next two victims had to have been Frankie Roden and Hannah Gilly. The young couple was found in bed. Frankie had three gunshot wounds to the head and Hannah Gilly was shot five times to the head and face. Frankie and Hannah's six-month-old baby was found in the bed with the bodies. Thankfully, the baby was unharmed. I am thinking that the killers would have stayed on the same road, which was Union Hill Road, 
and would have gone to Dana Roden's house next. Dana Roden was shot five times in the head and neck. Chris Jr. was shot four times, twice in the top of his head. Hannah Roden was shot twice in the head. Anna was found in her bed, holding her five-day-old baby. Thankfully, the baby was left unharmed. The autopsy report also revealed that some of the victims were beaten. To me, the fact that someone would beat someone after they were shot shows that there was some kind of rage involved. I mean, that would take some rage to do something like that after your victims were already dead. And they would have already been dead because these victims were shot in their beds. There was something, I think it was Chris Roden Sr., I think that there were signs that he or Gary had possibly been drugged through some part of the house. Now the last victim, Kenneth Roden, the one victim that had the dollar bills just thrown all over top of the body, he was shot nine times. He was also shot in the head. All these murders were vicious, horrible. There was rage involved. This was personal. But how personal was it? Was the motive simply as something as what the prosecutors are now saying as a custody battle gone really, really bad? I don't know. There is still more to this. There's still more opinions that I would like to give about that motive and what's going on. Another thing that happened on April 26, four days after the murders, the victims' bodies were released to the families. This had to have been a really hard time for the surviving Roden family. Funeral services would be held for six victims on May the 3rd of 2016. Now, I don't understand why investigators chose the time that they did, but during the funeral services, law enforcement had towed four vehicles from the crime scene. I'm not sure of the reason why investigators had impounded the vehicles that belonged to some of the victims. I guess this was to start the process of preserving the evidence. There was a lot of evidence that the investigators would have to preserve. Four cars that had been towed away on the day of the funeral services would not be the last things to be hauled off of the road properties. It would take a lot of investigators to go over four crime scenes that happened on the same night. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of evidence to process, to preserve, and to think about. Of course, the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation would get involved. There would be at least 200 investigators put on this. Several different sheriff departments would get involved with this investigation. This would be the largest homicide investigation in Ohio's history. And still to this day, in the year of 2022, there are still two pending court trials on this murder case. And as I've said, 
at the beginning of this episode. I cannot put all this into one episode. But I will leave you with this at the end of this one. I do know that the other podcast, Bite and Massacre, has not talked about this yet. And that is, Angela Wagner has taken a plea deal to conspiracy to murder. And that George Wagner had a court hearing in December of 2021 trying to get the courts to drop the charges of murder because his brother Jake Wagner testifies that George did not kill anyone. I will talk about this, the investigation, the arrest, all in the next episode. So make sure that you subscribe to Murderers in Ohio to follow along with me, your host, Bill Swafford. This podcast and music was put together and performed by William Swafford. We got the devil on the road and over.